God's Word says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. I'm going to pause for just a second there because we're picking up the story right in the midst of some things that have happened. And so leading into this story, last week if you joined us, we preached on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Jesus took three disciples with him up on a mountain where he was transfigured. He was brilliantly white and the light shone from within him, and he was joined with Elijah and Moses. Uh, Peter on that mountain said some foolish things, if you recall that. And now Jesus is heading back down the mountainside towards the valley to join with the other nine disciples who are awaiting them. And so we pick up the story there again back into verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. In a 2005 interview with 60 Minutes, uh, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, Tom Brady, who is likely one of the greatest football players of all time, and I say that with great angst in my voice because I, being a California born and raised, was born in a family that cheered for the Los Angeles and then Oakland and now Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, for those of you who have watched football for any length of time, you know that my Raiders were knocked out of the playoffs by the New England Patriots in a heartbreaking loss in which the referees cheated. <laughs> and a new rule was brought about called the Tuck Rule, 
uh, Tom Brady would lead his New England Patriots to win the AFC Championship en route to his first Super Bowl ring. We now take up Tom Brady in 2005. He has won three Super Bowls at this point. And in an interview after his third Super Bowl win, he says this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? What a statement. To which he follows up, There has got to be more than this. We have the answer to that question, right? What is more of a mountaintop experience in American culture than winning the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it is the pinnacle event for sports fans and just regular people. Most people attend some sort of activity to watch the Super Bowl. Millions upon millions of people watch the Super Bowl. Millions of dollars poured out in advertising because of so many people sitting in front of the TV screen. And this man has participated in nine Super Bowls. He's run six Super Bowl rings. He has so many rings, he has to start on the other hand. To which he says, there's something greater out there for me. Could we think of a more mountaintop experience than winning the Super Bowl, right? Won the Super Bowl, and on top of that, has been named MVP numbers of times. The most valuable player in the most loved sport in our country. But hear this, life is not lived on the mountain. What happens after the mountaintop experience? We've come to this question as three disciples were with Jesus on the mountain, One of which said, hey, let's pitch some tents up here. Let's hang out. Let's set a bonfire. Let's cook some s'mores. Let's hang out with Jesus on the mountain forever. Everything is good. To which Jesus says, no, the work is not finished yet. We're heading back down to the valley. So what happens after the mountaintop experience? Many of us spend our whole lives looking for the thrill, looking for the adrenaline, seeking the top of the mountain. We live life focused on some distant thing. Maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's some sort of car. Maybe it's retirement. We want to get to that mountain, but we don't ever get to stay on the mountain because life is lived where? In the valley, right? It's lived on the valley floor. And when I say valley, I just mean normal. Life is lived in the normal. And so we spend our whole lives looking for the thrill, looking for adrenaline, seeking the top of the mountain, and yet the majority of our lives are spent in just the valley of everyday life. So what do you do when the high wears off? How do you react to God when it seems like He is not right there with you? Can anybody relate to that? God, where are you? I know your Word. I know what your Word teaches. I know that your word teaches that I have your Holy Spirit, but I don't feel you in this moment. What do you do then? What do you do when the naysayers, as we see in this story, have surrounded you and they're questioning the power of God? The disciples are trying to cast a demon out of this young boy. They are not successful. They have failed. And what happens? The, The scribes are, in essence, mocking them. 
You see, Jesus, again, has just been transfigured with his three closest disciples, James, John, and Peter. Again, Peter, in all his wisdom, makes a bonehead move and tries to remain on the mountaintop, but the work is not accomplished yet. They head back to the valley. The other nine disciples are in the valley trying to exercise a demon out of a boy. This boy's father is desperate. The crowds are surrounding. The critics cry out at their inability. And Jesus enters the scene. Jesus enters the chaos. Jesus takes control. It brings us to our main idea for this morning. Apart from Jesus, we are powerless. It's only through faith and prayer in Christ that we avail ourselves of God's power. Apart from Jesus, we are powerless. It's only through faith and prayer in Christ that we avail ourselves of God's power. Mark 9, 17 to 18, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and what does it say? They were not able. You see, they had separated, they had forgotten the power that they had in being aligned with Christ. The disciples in this moment have ventured out on their own, trying to rely on a power that was given to them. If you read back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is with the disciples again on a mountain, the twelve of them, and He commissions them with the Gospel and to be able to exercise demons. But it seems as though they have gone in their own willpower and are trying to attempt the things only people empowered by God can do. And here's the lesson. We don't graduate, Christian, we don't graduate beyond faith and prayer. We don't ever move beyond those things. Again, apart from Jesus, we are powerless. It's only through faith and prayer in Christ that we avail ourselves of God's power. Those are the means that God has chosen to bless. Simply put, we need Jesus. Because life isn't lived on the mountaintop, it's lived in the valley. And I think we've all experienced that over the last few months of this never-ending year, right? Life has been in the valley. This doesn't mean that life is tough all of the time. We enjoy times of, of pleasure and we enjoy times of pain and suffering. But life is lived in the normal. Too many times we are focused on the distant things, on the mountaintops, when we need to just be walking one foot, being present in this time and what Jesus has right before us. God works in the midst of the mundane, the normal. Don't miss those opportunities. God works in the mundane of the workplace. We believe that our God is sovereign. 
God has sovereign you, placed you in the workplace that you are in. It's not a mistake. And in that normal, be empowered by the means that God has chosen to bless faith and prayer and carry out the work of gospel ministry in that place. It's no accident that you're there. God works in the mundane of the baseball field that your kid plays on or the soccer field that your kid plays on and the parents that you're sitting next to and conversing with. Those are opportunities. So many times we pray, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and you sit for an hour through a soccer game with somebody and if you're anything like me, you're yelling at the refs the whole time instead of having a conversation with that person about Jesus. God works in the mundane of the grocery store checkout line. God works in the mundane of the fuel pump. And you see that person pull up next to you and they get out of the car and there's a little bit of a tear in their eye. Do you ignore that moment and get back into your car? Or do you say something? God works in the mundane of the family dinner table and conversations with our family. You see, the disciples are down in the valley, in the normal, I don't know this seems abnormal that somebody is demon-possessed. I don't want to make that too normal. That's not normal. But they have been empowered by Jesus to do this, and yet they are not focused on the means that God has given them to save this life, which is faith and prayer. It seems that they have taken this situation lightly. And why do I connect these to the normal? Don't take the normal lightly. God works in the normal. There's too many times, again, that we're looking for the mountaintop. We're looking for this divine appointment. God has given you divine appointments each and every moment of your life. Open your eyes to what God wants you to do. Prior to this episode, the disciples... Again, it had another mountaintop experience, right? In Mark chapter 3, I'd encourage you to go back and read that today. They had, in this episode, mistaken Jesus' empowering to preach the gospel and exercise demons from that chapter as a delegation that would empower them beyond their continual need for Jesus. Church, we always need the power of Jesus. The message never gets old. It never gets tired. We never graduate beyond that. We always need the power of Jesus Christ. How relatable is this? How often do we take for granted the power that we have within us? How often do we think that we've, well, I've moved beyond that now, Jesus. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can use my own willpower when God says, I will bless faith and prayer. And we stumble and fumble through situations without giving a thought to getting on our knees and praying and crying out to God. Church, seek God in desperate faith and prayer. We're going to look at four important truths this morning that we draw out of this passage. Because first, we get a picture of the grace and mercy of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which brings us to our first point. Jesus is patient and loving. Jesus is patient and loving. 
Verse 19, and he answered them with these words, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me. Bring the child to me. I think in these words we see Jesus exasperated but patient. This is a God that is holy and perfect, that has spoken everything into existence. At the snap of his fingers, the world could burn up. But here he just says, How long do we have to keep going through this? God is so patient with us. The patience of Jesus on full display. Again, we sense the tension in his voice, the exasperation. What is it going to take for people to get it? Jesus has been carrying out miracle after miracle, exercising demons, teaching uh, with amazement to the crowds, has been transfigured. What is it going to take for people to get who I am? Which brings us to this, how patient is our God with us? He's so incredibly patient. But we do see within this passage that, uh, to me, there's a tension and there's an exasperation in Jesus' voice. When we lack trust in God, it's annoying to Him. There's not a better word I can come up with. That has to be an annoyance. The, The way that He has moved in our lives... It's like, man, we're going to go through this again? Really? But man, he's patient and loving with us because his annoyance is sinless. It's perfect. It's not our annoyance and our snippiness. And so he continues to exercise his patience and love, but a warning there, he doesn't stay patient forever. We see in this he's also loving. 21 to 23. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Patience and love are both on display in these verses. When the father, the child's father, questions Jesus' ability to heal, what does Jesus say? If you can? And yet Jesus, in His loving kindness, overcomes what the demonic that haunts this boy and heals him. There's a clear lesson in division here that I want you to see. What is the demon in this boy trying to do? He throws him into the fire and the water. What's he trying to do to him? Kill him. Hear this. The enemy seeks to destroy you as we witness in this boy. But Jesus is the giver of life. It's why he says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life, and what? Have it abundantly. Not just living, but abundant, good, blessed life in Christ. Jesus, in His patience and love, gives us life. As we see later in the story, what does He do? He literally raises this boy that appears to be dead. He puts out His hand and raises him from the dead.
The enemy only wants to destroy you. And he does it in ways that are more subtle than this boy's demon possession. That's what you need to be on guard against. His tactics are not as overt as what we see in this passage. The enemy does it through distraction. He does it through lulling you into a state of complacency. He does it through shiny things in life that distract you from the beauty of God. He does it through uh, division in politics. How many of us have been lulled into the enemy's lie that things can be fixed by a man or a woman? Things can only be made right by the one perfect man, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to participate in the political process, but please, church, don't place your faith and hope in a person. They will disappoint you every single time. And by all means, don't tear the church apart over your allegiance to one of those people. We are united behind our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The enemy uses tactics like these to steal and kill and destroy. Let us be united by the blood of Christ and the instruction of His Word. That's how we participate in the political structures of the United States. The enemy works against you through making you think that you can rely on your own willpower to save yourself. You don't graduate beyond faith and prayer. You don't graduate beyond your need for the gospel to hear the work of Christ and what He has done for you. We don't move beyond that. We hear and receive that over and over again so that we can be transformed by the power of Jesus' work. And it's transformation through the gospel that allows us to be changed, to live a new life. Don't be deceived by the enemy who wants to kill you. Put your faith and trust in the one who gives life, Jesus. Brings us to our next point. Number two, we come to Him in desperate faith. We come to Him in desperate faith. Leading into verse 24, it says, And Jesus said to him, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, Hear this, hear these five words here. I believe, help my unbelief. We had a set of phrases at the beginning of our worship gathering that we uttered these words, Save me from my unbelief, God, that we would pray those kind of prayers. Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm honest enough to say, help my unbelief. Help where I fall short. Help my unbelief. I'm desperate. What incredible honesty and humility that this man has in front of the crowd with his sick child to be humble enough to say, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So many times we want to come to the cross and try to clean everything up first. This man comes honest, open, desperate. My child needs you. I'm hurting. I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, you can do this. Help me where I believe you cannot. This is a perfect example of God working through small faith. Jesus doesn't correct the man and say, hey, you need a little bit more faith than that. That's not enough. Jesus sees the desperation of this man. He has come to him. He has come in the midst of chaos. And he brings life. He honors the desperate plea of this child's father. We witness here what desperate faith looks like. This man is broken for his child and he seeks help. Jesus comes to him and gives this child life. He honors the faith of this man, even the smallest, teeniest little speck. A few things here. First, focusing on the disciples. You see, they didn't bring this young man to Jesus. They tried in their own willpower and programs to fix the situation, and they were powerless apart from God. Here, this church, we bring people that are desperate to the only hope, which is Jesus. That's the only hope we have to offer, is Jesus Christ. The disciples were trying to heal apart from the power of God. They were using worldly means to exercise a demon, and they came up what? Empty. They struck out. Again, our main point, apart from Jesus, we are powerless. It is only through faith and prayer in Christ that we avail ourselves of God's power. Oh, church, that we would fall on our face before our holy God and cry out to Him that He would move and work. Another thing, I'm going to speak a little bit directly to, not a little bit, I'm going to speak directly to fathers here. Look at the desperation of this child's father. You guys see the desperation of dad in this story? He's brought this child to be healed by Jesus. The disciples try, they're unable. People are lodging insults. He humbles himself before the Lord who has come. He confesses, I believe, but he, it's a repentant confession. Help me in my unbelief. There's honesty there, humility, desperation. Oh, that we would see fathers who are desperate for their families. That we could have men as desperate as this father is for his son. Desperate, he falls before the Savior of the world and he has nothing to offer. He brings a demon-possessed child. That's his offering to God. God, this is what I have to offer you. My demon-possessed child and this little speck of faith. And what does Jesus do? He gives new life. Fathers, how many times have you fallen beside 
the bedside crying out to the Lord on behalf of your family. God, would you save my children? God, would you transform my family? God, would you be at work? God, would you use my little speck of faith? Would you help me in my unbelief? I can just imagine that this man's heart is broken for his family. And what does God do? He honors that. He honors this man's desperation. I know this isn't a popular thing to say in our culture, but men hear this. It begins with you falling desperately on your face before God in your homes and crying out for your families. Lord, would you save my family? Lord, would you work? Lord, would you help me to be an instrument of life? And men, we need to display this desperation for Jesus to our families. Our families need to see our own hurt and our brokenness so that when they grow and they leave the house and they're in the valley of despair, that they can look back and say, I remember what dad did in these moments. He fell down on his face before the Lord and he cried out for mercy. I remember what my father did. And we've seen it both ways throughout Mark. We've seen mothers come desperately too. I'm not excluding you. But in this story, we see a father. And I think it needs to be said, we need desperate, faithful fathers in the church to lead to revival. We need to display this desperation because, again, Jesus is our only hope. And so we come to Jesus with desperate faith. And also, number three, we come to Him in desperate prayer. We come to Him in desperate prayer. Again, don't abandon the means that God has promised to honor. He is faithful. Desperate faith and desperate prayer. Why did the disciples fail to meet the needs of this family? Verse 28 and 29, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him, why did we fail, Jesus? Why could we not cast this one out? Jesus says this kind cannot be driven out by anything, what? But prayer. Disciples, you didn't use the means. I've shown you. I've gone off by myself and I've prayed. And you didn't do the same thing. The answer is prayer. I think God has something to say about prayer in this church because we just preached on prayer a few weeks ago. Church, fall on your knees before God and cry out to Him. It's so simple. But yet we can make it so complicated, can't we? Well, maybe it's because I don't do this enough or maybe it's because I didn't go to church or maybe it's because... Pray and cry out to God. It's no wonder that when Jesus arrives on the scene, He says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You see, I want you to... God doesn't need our prayer to work. He can handle it on His own. But He delights in working through the prayers of His people. You are powerless apart from faith and prayer in Jesus. I can't say it any other way. That's what this story is pointing to. And it doesn't have to be complicated. 
going back to the Father. He cries out to Jesus five words. I believe, help my unbelief. We see faith and prayer. He's praying to Jesus right there. I believe, help my unbelief. He's communing with God. He's communicating with Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Every prayer church should include this. Jesus, I believe, but help me where I fall short. Help me where my heart tells me that you're not going to answer this prayer. Help me where I think that you're failing me, but I know that you are faithful. Keep it simple. Five words, Jesus saves his son. This, he didn't go into like old King James English here. He said plain words to Jesus, and Jesus honored those and saved his child. Again, we want to make it complicated. Jesus makes it so easy. Pour out your heart to God. That's what this man does. He pours out his heart to Jesus. He's just honest. He even, if you can, Jesus, if you can, desperate, humble, honest. Pour out your heart to God because He delights in working through your prayers. He delights in hearing from you. Why? Because He's a good Father. Doesn't a good father want to hear from their children? God wants to hear from His children. You, through the blood of Christ, church, are a child of God. You are a son of or a daughter, and God wants to hear from His children. And He delights to work through the prayers of His children. And He's not hindered by a simple prayer or a fumbling prayer. He honors a desperate and contrite heart. Stop worrying about the words and come to God just as you are, desperate and seeking His loving kindness. He's a good Father. Some of you need to hear this in the room because you had terrible fathers. Our God is a good Father. He was so good that the Scripture says that while you were His enemy, that He sent His Son to die for you. That's how good of a God that we serve. And lastly, number four. You knew we were going to talk about the resurrection this morning. It's in this story. Number four, we need the power of Jesus to be raised to new life. We need the power of Jesus to be raised to new life. Two scenes ago, if we back up into chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The disciples are confused. Peter acts a fool in that situation. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus tells the three disciples not to say anything about the Transfiguration until after He has risen from the dead. He speaks of the resurrection again. The disciples, God's Word says, are perplexed. They're confused. And here in this passage, we witness a picture of resurrection in the boy. Next week, Jesus is going to predict His resurrection again. It says in verses 26-27, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, that is the demon, 
and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. He looked like he was dead. But Jesus, right, took him by the hand and lifted him up, and what did he do? He arose. I want to be careful. I don't want to make this story overly symbolic. There's symbolism here, but this actually happened. I want to be clear about that. This boy is really possessed by a demon. He's not an epileptic. He's not suffering from epilepsy. He was demon-possessed, and the symptoms of that possession were what we see here. Convulsions and foaming at the mouth and being thrown on the ground. When Jesus is at work, he exercises the demon out of the boy. He then, what, appears to be dead. So He passes out on the floor. Everybody thinks he's died now. But then what happens? Jesus raises him to new life. These things really happened. And they're also incredibly relatable to us. I want to point out two things, a few layers this morning. How do we relate to this boy just like him? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's what the Bible says. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were under the influence of the enemy and the world system. The world system lies to you and says, we will fulfill you. We will make you happy. We will make everything fine, except nothing fulfills me and everything fails me except for Jesus Christ. So we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We were spiritually dead. And yet Jesus came to us just like he came to this father and child. And we received the good news of the gospel and we have been raised by the power of God to new life. Just like this boy, as Jesus reached out his hand and lifted him from the ground and it says he arose to new life. You were spiritually dead in your transgressions and sins and God has made you spiritually alive to him. Another layer. The demon came out of the boy. Now the demon's been trying to kill this kid. He's been trying to throw him in the fire and in the water. That demon finally had accomplished what he was trying to do all along. To steal and kill and destroy this child. The boy lie lifeless and appearing to be dead. Hear this. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and He shed His blood for our transgressions and sin. And He died. He didn't appear to be dead. He actually died. And he was taken from the cross and he was laid in the tomb. And on that day, I guarantee Satan thought he had won the victory. But on that third day, the ground shook and the light poured out. And the stone was rolled away and Jesus emerged victorious over sin and death. Our God is not dead, church. He's alive. We don't worship a God who is in the grave. We don't listen to a prophet who's long gone. We listen to a Savior who is ruling and raving right now from heaven, and He is alive. And we avail ourselves of that type of power through faith and prayer. Do you hear that? The power over death. You have the power of life within you because you have God's Holy Spirit that has filled you. 
This is the gospel. That the work of God himself saves us. The disciples tried to do the work on their own, and it didn't happen. Through desperate faith and prayer, God worked. The work of God saves us, and it continues to hold us. I want you to hear that, church. God holds on to you. In the valley of despair, when you feel like he's far from you, he's still right next to you, walking with you, carrying you. It's amazing grace. It's why Paul would say in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? To everyone else. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Seems to be a common theme, right? And so I call out to you, unbeliever in the room. Today is the day. The gospel has been proclaimed, and if I haven't been clear, we are in sin apart from Christ, separated from the holiness and righteousness of God, unable to have a relationship with Him. And God's wrath is upon us. But Jesus came in the flesh to live the perfect life, fully obedient to the law and to His Father, obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He gave up His life for you, that you can be reconciled to God. And He was raised to new life on the third day, defeating sin and death. And He offers you the free gift of salvation if you will place your faith and trust in His finished work. That you may be reconciled to His Father. That you may be saved from the failures of the world and the world system. And you may be given life. And life, as Jesus said, abundantly. Fall before Him in desperate faith and prayer. Give your life to Jesus and He will bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. I want you to hear this quote from James Edward. He's a commentator that I was reading this week. He says, True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus, I love this, by the weakness of his followers. Thank God, because I am very weak. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that these words, Jesus is able. Jesus is able. Believer, I've spoken to the unbeliever in the room. Believer, don't abandon the means that God has promised to bless. There's no fancy application this morning. Come to God in faith and prayer. That's the point of the story. It's that simple. The quantity of faith does not matter. It's the quality of desperation before God. Pouring out your heart to Him. Desperate for God to move and to work. We come to Jesus powerless and we are filled with the power of the living God, the Holy Spirit within us. And so we can go boldly in faith and prayer.